Good morning. Uh, we are beginning a new series this Sunday called Uncut. And if you are one of our guests this morning, I want to let you know we are so glad that you're here. We've planned this morning with you in mind, and I believe there's a reason uh, that God wants to connect with every single one of us who are here today. If you have your Bibles, uh, I'd encourage you to open to the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible. We'll look in chapters 6 through 9 for most of our time together and have a few more verses on the screen as well a little later. But we live in a world that edits everything. And one of the ways that we edit our lives is through the medium of social media. Uh, we love to get on Facebook and make sure that the perfect profile picture is on there with you know, just the right angle to make us look good. And, and we put the, the books on there, not just the ones we like, but mostly the ones we want others to think that we like, right? And, and we post certain things that reflect a certain part of our lives, but there's a whole other part of our lives that doesn't seem to ever hit Facebook. We put certain pictures on, but there's others that don't quite make the cut. And I want to talk over the next few weeks in this series about how we might do some of the same things with Scripture that we do through social media. Uh, How some of the stories that we've come to know and love are actually edited quite a bit uh, in, in the way that we've learned them growing up. Appropriately so for children, because let's face it, Scripture has a lot of objectionable content in it, right? I mean, there's just certain parts of Scripture you don't read to your kids. So we appropriately edit these stories down, but along with those edits, we miss a more hopeful story that I hope to share with you uh, with several of the characters that many of you have known growing up. But back to social media. We think that this is going to make our lives a lot better, but what I found through Facebook and Twitter and all of these places is that often what I see in my own life, the -the behind-the-scenes pictures, I'm often comparing with the highlight reels of everyone else on my timeline. I see the best parts of their lives, and I begin to compare my life to it, and I realize that uh, I don't seem to add up all of the time. There's a lot more junk that's going on in my life. And, and, and so we can lend ourselves to a place where we can kill contentment and feed insecurity by comparing ourselves to others at every moment we have an opportunity to. And there's a lot of plastic surgery going on in our world, but the truth is there's a freer and easier and less painful way to do so through our Facebook profiles. One of my favorite bloggers is a guy named Richard Beck. He's a psychology professor at Abilene Christian University. And he wrote a blog one time that I thought was helpful when thinking about this whole topic. He was on his way to the Pepperdine Bible Lectures in Malibu, California. And he was struggling with what he would post when he was there because everyone seems to post a certain picture when they go to Pepperdine. And and so this is what he wrote on his blog. He said, why do people want to inform everybody back home that they're going to a beautiful place like Malibu? Do they have no shame, no social skills? Do they like making people envious? Why would you want to let a person back home know as he or she slogs through their midweek work commute that you are currently sitting at the beach? What sort of sick person tweets about sitting on the beach while others are working? And my response that week was, well, this person, because that's the picture I posted. Unfortunately, I think we've done this to the Bible just as much as we do this to our own lives. I was searching this week on Amazon, typed in the word Bible, and there was over 500,000 results for Bible that showed up on Amazon that you could buy or purchase, which is a lot of options, right? In fact, I was studying with a guy in Denver before I came here, and, and, and we were going to walk through the Gospels together. So we started to, 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 to look at Scripture, and he never had a Bible. And so I said, why don't you go to the Christian bookstore? You can pick up a Bible, and we'll start reading together next week. 
So he goes to the Christian bookstore and he saw the wall of Bibles and was pretty overwhelmed by this choice about which one to buy. Because you've got the Archaeological Study Bible and you've got the American Patriots Bible and you've got the teen version and the children's Bibles. You've got all these versions. So he walked up to one of the employees. This was at one of the Baptist retailers. And so they told him a book that probably they got a greater cut from, the HCSB, the Christian, Holman's Christian Standard Bible. So he's really excited and he, he calls mom on the phone because she wants him back in church. And, and she says, guess what, mom? I got a Bible. And she goes, well, which one did you get? And he said, the HCSB. She said, that's the wrong one. It's a bad world we live in when you have to have a personal assistant to go buy a Bible, right? And I think we find ourselves with this frustration sometimes of how do we engage Scripture? Which one do I buy? And the Bible I want to focus on is the one that we heard from earlier. It's the children's Bible. Now, before I give some criticism about the children's Bible, let me say we have a children's Bible at home, and we read it most nights together. And there's an appropriate place for children's Bibles. It's kind of like radio-edited content on your radio, safe and fun for the whole family kind of thing, because, again, there's certain parts you don't read to your kids. Like, if you don't believe me, then go home tonight, and I encourage you to just read Song of Solomon to your kids. And just see what questions might emerge along the way. Some conversations you might have wanted to wait on a little bit might show up sooner. And that's what we do to Scripture sometimes. And I'm not here to condemn children's Bibles. In fact, I think it's appropriate for six-year-olds to hear from children's Bibles. But the truth is, we're not six anymore. And those stories that many of us learned at VBS or these cultural knowledge about some of these stories, I don't think they provide the hope that we hope they will. Because growing up, I remember thinking of characters like Moses and Noah and Jonah. And I remember thinking these were like superhuman characters. They were like superheroes of the Bible. It's kind of how the VBS stories went. And they could do no wrong. And so I began to think, well, if I'm going to be used by God, then maybe I can't have anything wrong with me either. And I wonder if some of the reason that people don't want to enter into the doors of a church sometimes is because we put off this face, this persona, this image that maybe you have to have it all together to be used by God. That maybe before you make a decision to follow him, you have to get all your sins out of the way and then figure out what it looks like to follow him. And that's not the kind of church we want to be, is it? We want to be a church that certainly transforms people from places of sin to places of righteousness to, to get rid of the addictions and hurts and habits and hang-ups in our lives. Absolutely, that's what we're on a journey to become. But we start in a certain place. And Jesus didn't tell his disciples, hey, why don't you clean everybody up before you come and let them be a part of this group? Why don't you let them believe and behave correctly? Then we'll let them belong. Jesus let people belong, knowing that that belonging with the work of the Holy Spirit as well would lead people to a place of belief and behavior more in line with who Jesus is. And I love this about the Bible. The Bible's not a propaganda tool. There's a lot of history books that are written by the winners because the losers aren't around to write the story at some point, right? And they tell the story from a certain perspective with all the heroes looking as if they have nothing wrong with them. That's the way many countries, including our own, sometimes write our history books. But, But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible shares the good parts, yes, but it also shares the bad and the ugly that goes along with it. And that's what I want to look at is through these characters in Scripture that some of us may have put on pedestals, I want to knock those pedestals down. Because I think the same way that God used Noah is the same way of hope that God can use many of us as well. But we have to know the whole story. Let's pray together as we open this story about Noah. Father, I, I thank you for this story about your salvation. 
about you saving uh, your people through the waters. And yet this is also a very violent story. It's a story about people who don't make the cut. It's a story about people uh, who, who are evil, yes, in some ways, the way you describe. But we, we just don't get this story all the time. So God, would you open our eyes to see the good news in this story about Noah? That you use people like Noah, and that means you can use us. And so this morning, God, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and in our lives, and we would leave this morning more hopeful than we came. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. This is the way that Genesis tells the story. And each day of creation, there's a rhythm. He creates, and he calls it good. He creates, and he calls it good. It's this rhythm that happens six different times. And when humans come along, he says, this is very good that they should be together. But there's one rule that God gives his creation in the midst of all this goodness. He says, there's one tree you're not supposed to eat from. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which I think we can all agree is way too long a name for any tree, right? But that's the tree God says they can't eat from. So there's this tree in the middle, and what do humans find their way to, just like Adam and Eve? We find ourselves to the place that God tells us not to go. Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and and from there, sin breaks into the world. And I want to talk about that word a little bit this morning, sin. Because it's a word that's fallen on hard times. It's a word that reminds us of, well, judgment and judgmentalism and intolerance. Two of our culture's least tolerated ideas. Sin, isn't that a word from a time past? That's not who, where we are today. We live in an age of post-modernity, in an age where truth is relative, that what's right for you is right for you, and what's true for me is true for me. But hear me out this morning, because I want to reframe this idea of sin along the lines of some of my life story as well. See, I grew up thinking that sin was always a mistake that I made. It was a decision that I made to go against God's rules, and there's a sense in which that's absolutely right. That when we sin, God's given us a way to live, and we live opposite the commands he's given. But I never found it quite that simple. That it was just this decision I made wrong, and if I could just make the right decision, then I wouldn't be sinning anymore or apart from God. I never found it that simple. And when I read Paul's words in Romans chapter 7, it helped me realize this struggle's a little bit deeper than a decision. Let's read it. In fact, I'll have it on the screen here. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. Paul writes, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. Does anyone relate to these words? I don't understand what I do sometimes. Sometimes I have this thing that I want to do and I don't do it. There's other times I don't want to do something and I happen to do it. See, what I think Paul's talking about is that uh, sin's more than just a decision, but can anyone relate to these words? Can you raise your hand and say, I've been there? But I, I struggle with sin, and I make decisions about today it's going to be different, or, or this week it's going to be different. I'm going to do away with this. I'm going to start fresh. This is a new decade in my life. I'm going to start in a new way. It's a new year. I'm going to make resolutions. But it seems like it's harder than that to get rid of these things in our lives. And then in verse 17, Paul says something more. He says, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Now, that's an interesting idea because, like I said, I thought about uh, this growing up as if sin was a choice that I made. But I'm beginning to realize that sin isn't just a bad decision we make. Sin is a power that's at work within us, is what Paul's saying. 
And this power has a way of growing beyond what we control. This, this decision that seems like a small sin at first can turn into lots of damage that we never imagined that we could do. Here's another definition of sin in case that doesn't connect with you. Sin is the human propensity to mess things up. You know what I'm talking about? Any amens out there? Have you got a propensity to mess stuff up in your life? You just can't seem to get it right. You try to get the relationship right and something goes haywire. Or, or you're at work and you're trying to do it this way. And, and I think all of us get to a place in our lives where we are able to admit we've got a propensity to mess things up. And then we need a Savior who's going to save us from doing that. Some of us came to that all too early in life. Maybe it was a marriage that ended early in our 20s. Or maybe it was a career that stalled and crumbled. Or maybe it was a relationship that began to fade when you only saw the kids on Saturdays. When the supposedly recreational drug turned into uh, something that exercised your veto power over the things you wanted to control. Or perhaps you lucked out and it wasn't a big collapse in your life, but you came to this one point in your life, you'd lived long enough, and you began to realize that you'd sold out to something other than the dream and vision you had for your life. This is the way you thought it would go. But you lived long enough to realize, wait, it's not turning out that way. Maybe it was a midlife crisis that you realized, I had all these dreams about where I would be now and I'm not there. And maybe it was this human propensity to mess things up that kept it as it was. So we numb ourselves to this realization, don't we? We keep ourselves busy. We, we shop. We binge watch Breaking Bad on Netflix, right? Any, anybody? We all sense this ability within us to do incredible harm. And yet we numb ourselves to this reality saying, well, it's not so bad. And, and then we find ourselves living through life and We haven't gotten where we'd wanted. See, it's true today, and it was true in Genesis chapter 3. See, in one sense, all Adam and Eve did is they ate a piece of fruit. But in another sense, they started a propensity within us to do all these things we don't want to do, a power at work called sin. And things got out of control quickly. And so we have all kinds of utter devastation. We have tsunamis and earthquakes and school shootings and genocides that orphan children from their parents. And we like to think that we can control these mistakes that we make, but these mistakes begin to take control over us over time, don't they? So after Adam and Eve sinned, it begins to spiral out of control because in the next story, Cain and Abel come along, and and here we have one brother, Cain, who kills his brother, Abel. As the story goes on, Cain's great-great-great-grandson shows up. You may have not noticed this story before. It's in Genesis chapter 4, verse 23, we read about Lamech, who's along the line of Cain. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. You see this kind of multiplication of sin and violence and all kinds of problems in this world. And so God comes to a place with a man named Noah where violence has taken over too much. And this is what we read from Noah's story in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wait, wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's hard to believe, isn't it? That God regretted something? I mean, how does that make sense? Because God 
He knows all things. He's sovereign, right? So how could God... And do you notice the thing he regretted? He regretted making humans, which hurts, doesn't it? He, he says it twice, so you make sure you get it in those verses. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And he tells Noah, I want you to build a boat. I'm going to start all over. This is creation 2.0. Why don't we start over with your family and maybe things will be different. So Noah builds the boat and he floods the entire world. He saves Noah and his family. And, and, and let me just say, if you're with us this morning and you've heard this story about a flood and Noah and you have a hard time believing that as you're new to faith, I want to welcome you here with all your doubts and questions. And that's okay at this point not to, to come to that. We're people who try to believe in the Bible, but I know some of these stories can be difficult to understand. But you're welcome here, and I want you to struggle through this with us, and maybe you'll find something that will connect with your life today. But I bet if anything about Noah, you know, it's probably this story about this, right? And then after it, the story about a rainbow, right? We read on in, in Genesis 9, after the flood's finished. Genesis 9, verse 11. He says, I established my covenant with you, God says. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I'll remember my covenant between you, me and you, and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. So here comes the story in Genesis 9 about a God who promises never to kill everyone on earth through a flood, which we're grateful for. But if you're reading the children's Bible, this is probably where your story ended. But there's more to the story, and we pick up on that in Genesis 9, verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward, covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. Again, this one didn't make your children's Bible. And you might have grown up thinking that Noah was this superhero who could do no wrong, but let me kind of dash those hopes because this is a broken man. And I think we can all understand somebody having a drink when they get off a boat in celebration of being back on dry ground, but Noah does more than that. Noah finds himself in a a sticky situation. I mean, aren't you glad your worst moment wasn't recorded in the world's best-selling book for us to read thousands of years later. See, apparently this idea to flood the earth didn't get rid of sin, did it? And this is an embarrassing conclusion to a journey about God's talking about this blameless man. And I have to think that this rage that Noah shows isn't God's will, that he wants to curse one of his sons and a whole line of people. I'm guessing that this is a response of Noah to the embarrassment of his situation. And I'm just guessing 
But some of us have some family tension that goes on around Thanksgiving tables and Christmas tables. And often that comes to a moment of anger that happened at some point and a response that if you thought about it or someone else had thought about it wouldn't have been said. But we have to realize that anger is always a second-hand emotion. It's not our first response. Anger often covers up something else that's our first emotion, whether it's fear or discouragement or frustration. We have something in our lives that, that, that we're, we're embarrassed about. Maybe that's what happened in your family. It was a story of embarrassment. Someone got caught in some situation, and they respond in anger and say something that just seems to never be able to be forgiven. Maybe you're the person who did the offending, or maybe you saw it happen, and you're not sure how to respond But if you find yourself this week or maybe today later in the day and you find anger to be your response, I want to challenge you to think, okay, what is behind this anger that I'm expressing? What's the emotion that I feel first that maybe I need to work on in my own life so that anger isn't something that I'm always working out of and causing all kinds of problems around me? But this story of Noah reminds us that small sins can have a huge impact. Because Canaan, who Noah curses... His descendants are the Canaanites, the Babylonians, and the Assyrians. Three enemies of Israel through the rest of their time. When they go into exile later on, it's still this family that's still in tension, that's causing all kinds of problems for Israel. Which makes me think that sometimes the small sins that we think no one knows about, they could still cause problems in the Middle East for thousands of years if we're not careful. Because we think, if I just do this and no one knows, it's no big deal. But what it can turn into is this cycle of problems, generational sin that can go on for years. See, what we don't realize is that sin's not just a choice that we make and then we can stop making. It's a power that's at work within us. And when we allow it a power to work in our lives, it continues to grow into a monster that we can't control. We all have to acknowledge that the line between good and evil It runs through every single one of us. We can't divide the world up into black and white, good and evil, as if it's just this simple thing that here's evil and here's good, and and, and those people are evil because they're not us. No, evil and good run through the middle of all of us. We all have a tremendous propensity for amazing good that we can do in our lives, and I think we all know amazing harm that we can do with our lives. See, Noah's story is about a flood, but it's about much more than that. And to me, Genesis 9 gives me more hope that if God can use a guy like Noah in that way, then maybe he can use us to save the world as well. I was thinking this week about a testimony that we, we might share. In fact, I hope we'll have more testimonies through our series. But I, I, I got word that, that Sharon Jones would be willing to share her testimony. I'm so grateful for her being willing to show this on, on video today. So right now, I just wanna, want you to pay attention to this video, this testimony of God's work. Because sometimes we think about testimonies as these huge problems or addictions that God saves us from. But sometimes it's sin that gets out of control. Maybe it's sometimes our families that show up in our own lives. So let's watch this right now. Hi, my name is Sharon Jones. I grew up in a family with four children. I'm the oldest. I have uh, two sisters and a brother. I had a pretty happy home life for the most part growing up. I thought it was pretty normal. We were very involved in church. We lived on the mission field because my dad was in the Air Force and we had a lot of fun with the mission churches and My dad was a deacon and my mother involved in Bible school. There was never a Sunday or Sunday night or Wednesday night that we were not in church. 
But I would like to share a journey that I have experienced, that I have gone through, um, and some things that I've learned about myself. Whenever I used to read Galatians chapter 5, I always focused on the part that started after verse 22 because I never really thought the works of the flesh that started with verse 19 ever really applied to me. However, a thought occurred to me recently that there is so much more to the works of flesh than I ever realized. One is called fear and another is called a low sense of self-worth. And these are things that bring about anger, distrust, and ultimately interfere with my ability to truly love God as He has called me to love. I've also come to understand that what generational sin means. I always thought it had to do with the Israelites in the Old Testament and the results that came from that. God would allow entire generations to die in order to cleanse the next generation. So I, I never really knew what in the world that had to do with me, so that was one of those things that I just kind of skimmed past. Well, for one thing, I have learned that my parents, their parents, my great-grandparents, and those that came before them carried secrets. They kept and they still keep them hidden so that they appear as if they are perfect people with no, perfect, with no personal struggles. Both sides of my family history contain stories of depression, sexual abuse, physical abuse, alcoholism, drug addiction, child abuse, adultery, and even murder. These all go way back into my family tree. I learned at a very young age how to hide from conflict by watching the way my mother hid from it. My parents were divorced when I was 17. That pretty much blew up my whole life from the way I understood it should be. My parents never demonstrated a loving husband and wife relationship to my siblings and me. We were all afraid of my dad and were frustrated with our mother for not standing up to him and taking care of us. These are things that happened behind closed doors that people at church didn't know about. My parents reunited after being separated for over 11 years. However, I'm still sometimes afraid of my 82-year-old father when he becomes angry. I will go out of my way just as my mother does to make sure no one is upset or left out or not hurt, even at the expense of compromising something that is important to me. I am told that I use the guilt and shame tactics on my own children when I want them to communicate or do something with their grandparents. These are things I learned from the generations before me. I did not ever realize that that was sin. I didn't realize my need to be accepted by my father and my mother could possibly interfere with the relationships that I have with other people that I love. 1 John 4 verse 18 says, The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Back up in verse 8, it says that whoever does not love does not, love, does not know God because God is love. I did not understand the impact fear has always had on my life or the impact it had on my relationship with God. 
My family had always been active, like I said, in church, but that activity alone did not remove the influence that fear had on our family. My parents had been taught to deal with life from the way their parents taught them, and they unintentionally passed those coping skills on to us. When I was 17 years old, I began to recognize something was wrong, and I vocalized to many people in my family that I choose to break the cycle of dysfunction that has permeated my family for so many generations. I had no idea what this journey would be at that young age, nor did I realize what that was going to mean in my own life or how long it would take me to learn the lesson. I had no idea that I had so much in common with God's people of the Old Testament. I have learned the importance of a healthy faith community. All the scriptures that I so naively thought did not apply to me now have new meaning. I think I am beginning to understand what it means to be set free. I am thankful for my family and the role it has played in bringing me to this point. I am thankful to be part of this Greenville Oaks community that continues to support me on this journey. I'm grateful for Sharon being willing to share that story. And I know so many of us have stories like this. And so often church is a place where you feel like I've I've got to put a, a mask on of sorts or just act like everything's okay. And I hope over these next few weeks, we'll begin to realize that, no, this needs to be the place of healing, and it can only be a place of healing if we can share our deepest wounds. So that may not happen on this stage or on video for you, but I hope through your connecting point groups, through your relationships that you build in your family units, however you need to, I'd love to be a conversation partner. I know our elders and prayer partners would as well, that you'll be open to sharing these stories with us, and we'll be open to seeing how God transform us. Because if God can use Noah to save the world, It means he can use each of us as well with whatever struggles we might have. I want to pray uh, this morning, and then we'll uh, look forward to next week looking at the story of Ruth and more into her story. God, we, we thank you this morning for the story of Noah because it gives us hope that you don't need perfect people in order to get your kingdom accomplished. And your will's going to be done whether we're involved or not. The only question is, are we going to be in on it? Are we going to be involved? And we want to be, God. But many of us are hurting, and, and we're struggling with stories of, uh, victimhood, God, stories of, uh, of addiction, stories uh, of just broken relationships, stories of anger and unforgiveness. And so, God, would you come into our lives and would you allow us to admit and confess these things, whatever part we have to play, and would you heal us as well? God, I know that only happens in community as we share with one another. And so, God, would you create safe spaces for us to do this here at Greenville Oaks so that we can be your people in this world? We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who continues to transform us because we don't want to be people who just come in on hospital beds and stay here in a hospital. God, we want to be sent out to help be a part of the healing of the world. So God, thank you so much for this time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.